So should we do the intro and then I can go and get some sleep? Yeah. I believe it's Ben's turn. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, I did it last time. Oh, fair enough. Okay, we can do that then. Right. Let me just... Um, one take, McLeod. Here he goes. Please do it in one take, Ben. <laughs> I, I, no, no. Blah, 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 blah. I'm trying to put you off. <laughs> okay. Hello and welcome to 361, a week... Not a weekly podcast. Two take, Smith. <laughs> You've got to have a run-up, Rafe. You can't rush these things. It's not ready yet. Hello and welcome to 361, a podcast about mobile technology and the world around it. My name is Ben Smith. I'm Ewan McLeod. And I'm Rafe Blanford. This is Season 17, Episode 7, and this week we're talking about GPS spoofing in China, Express Transit Mode arriving to London's transport, and a Christmas gift guide. Welcome back, chaps. How are you? Rockin'. I'm good, thank you, Ben. Oh, good. Subdued. Genteel, Rafe Manford. Mm. You're, you're looking well this evening. Thank you, I appreciate that. Excellent. It's a very fine jumper you're wearing as well. Thank you. I just thought you deserved a treat. I'd dress up nice for you, you know. I appreciate it. You and McLeod's here as well. Uh, hello. Yes, yes. I can't hear Rafe that well, though. Oh, it's still, he's coming through a little bit tin cannish. Well, you know, I mean, we'll keep bullying him at some point in the season. We'll get him onto a new microphone. Okay. But, uh, no, Rafe is still attached to his... Uh, is it vintage now? I can't hear him. Literally can't hear him. Yeah. <laughs> For the uninitiated, you're on gardening leave at the moment. I am indeed. Yes. How is your gardening going? Uh, I haven't actually done any specific gardening, but I've done lots of trips to the recycling place. I see. This is basically what I've been doing. Yeah, and taking the children to school and back and forward and so on. So basically just standard parenting. Yes. Good. Yes. Exciting. Yes. <laughs> Very exciting for you. <laughs> <laughs> Insightful. Yep, indeed, indeed. Christmas is coming, you know, the geese are getting fat. So actually, we should talk about that last item on today's show. We will be talking about a bit of a Christmas gift guide mm-hmm. for the technology enthusiasts in your life. But So we'll talk about that in a minute. But first of all, we need to talk about more exciting stuff. Shall we kick off? Let's do it. Run fast. We're absolutely we're tight for time, so we should go. First up is a really fascinating article that I read in MIT's Technology Review. Mm-hmm. I'm always there, browsing around. Do you get the newsletter, or how did you come across it? I found it on Twitter, I think. Okay. It's, uh, right. it's very low-key. So, Rafe Blanford stands ready to real-time live fact-check me, because I lack expertise in what I'm about to talk about, but it uh, hasn't stopped me. Career in consulting has uh, got me this far. It's worth what you pay for it. <laughs> so, the background here is nearly every industry, and certainly travel and shipping and all that sorts of thing, depend on GPS. It's absolutely essential now. And although lots of different regions are considering or in the process of building their own replacements, everybody's pretty much still dependent on the American GPS system. Mm. So far, so good. Yes. At certain times, GPS gets jammed, particularly in war zones. And that's quite a routine thing to happen now. And it's relatively easy to do. Because I mean, there's a tool, you know, there's a GPS jamming tool. It's very easy to do because GPS jamming is just about making sure that devices can't hear the signals from the satellites. And okay. to do GPS positioning, you need three. And to do it well, you need four or more signals from different satellites, which fly over and they're geostationary. And so that means effectively that they're always in the same position in the sky, as far as you're concerned. And that means you can work out where you are. Right. 
So far, so good. Mm-hmm. There's a case in Shanghai which is proving really interesting because it's the first ever suspected, but definitely not proven, case of bespoke GPS spoofing. Mm-hmm. So this is really fascinating. And I was kind of half interested in this because I'm not sure I understood the story and half interested because it sort of is part sort of uh, James Bond. Part sort of, you know, real impact on our lives potentially. So the next step up for people who don't know beyond GPS jamming is GPS spoofing. And Rafe, that's easy enough to do, isn't it? Because although GPS signals have encryption in them, you can just broadcast a signal that's louder than them and convince everybody that they're hearing the same location data. That's right. And it doesn't even have to be particularly powerful because the strength of the signal isn't that great. And it's possible to do this not just for GPS, but for Galileo Glasnost and the kind of Chinese equivalent as well. But I knew he'd know the names. Ah, exactly. Exactly. He knows these things. <laughs> he knows stuff. When this spoofing usually happens, what you see is everyone in the same location essentially gets spoofed to the same location or the same kind of offset from what is actually correct. And it's even been in a James Bond film. That's why the Devonshire got got. I thought that's where it, I... Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I'm remembering it now. Movie reference for you in there. So, he, you know, now... It helps him thank understand... You, thank you. The world, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm with you now. James Bond. I, I know exactly what you mean now. The nasty Mr. Carver. Yes. Excellent. Mm-hmm. That's right. The media guy. Yeah. But what's happening here, Ben, as I understand it, is something rather more sophisticated than that simple kind of almost universal spoofing. Yeah. So this is taking place in Shanghai and GPS spoofing actually has been pretty rife in the Shanghai port for some time. And that's because there's a lot of smuggling going on in that area. I was surprised to read it, but actually the supply of a particular sand dredged from a particular river has been limited because of the huge environmental impact. And yet builders really want to use this sand. It's ideal for certain type of building works. And so this sand is being dredged and smuggled in the port and large scale organised crime uses GPS spoofing to hide their ships because they can effectively create a mess where Everybody's spoofed to the same location. Nobody trusts their locations anymore. That means they don't rely on the transponders, which report their location to the Coast Guard authorities. And all of a sudden, you've created enough noise that you can get your ship in and out of the port under the cover of this noise. What's really interesting about this story in Shanghai is it's the first time that it appears that ships have been spoofed to individual locations. That is, each ship receiving a different spoofing signal and being relocated to a different place. And that is incredibly hard to do because you need to calculate all the signals that that ship would need to receive and then transmit those signals or in some way get the ship to infer that data incorrectly from those signals. So effectively, there's a great graphic at the top of this article. Anyone who's interested in this, I suggest looking at it. But rather than having all of the ships cluster in one particular location, like the crude GPS spoofing of old, they're clustered into crop circles and they're clustered into different locations and they flash around the screen in all different locations. And the point is that this, if it's a deliberate act and it is indeed an intentional you know, bit of hacking going on, is incredibly hard to do. And that raises the questions, who is doing this? Mm. And the article goes on to speculate that it could be people who are doing smuggling, who've got access to more advanced technology, or it could be somebody using the well-known GPS spoofing in that location to 
test an electronic warfare weapon, and that could be a state actor, like the Chinese state, or it could be somebody else. But it's absolutely fascinating, basically reading the description, because of course, the US Coast Guard maintains a log of all GPS-related incidents, failures and problems. And it's the first time they've ever come across such a recurring set of cases where these errors have occurred, but also where everybody's experiencing it differently. And it was just absolutely fascinating to read. I'll link the article in the show notes, but it it makes us think, of course, that actually that is the next logical attack, though, that GPS signals could be spoofed, bespoke, and could guide airliners or ships the wrong way. Mm. And actually, many people probably unknowingly would have seen the outcome of this. There was a ship coming into Shanghai port earlier in the year, and the video of it was shared widely across social media. And it's a picture of a boat coming in towards the port. It's a boat called the New Glory. I'm not going to attempt to do the, uh, the Chinese name. It's a freighter coming into a port, and it was circulated as, oh, wow, look at this foolish captain. He's crashed into the shore, and you see people running, and it's incredible to see a boat, you know, a huge freighter come sort of slamming into the side. This is a little bit like the Jurassic Park movie, right? I think it was Jurassic Park 3 or 2. It helps him understand, doesn't it, Rafe, when we use movie references? I think you're probably thinking of Speed 2 Cruise Control, but anyway, <laughs> moving on. No, I'm actually, I'm thinking of Jurassic Park, but also okay, Speed that, that's 2 great. as well. Yeah. So the thing here, and actually, if you read the article, you'll see these ships and the GPS positions are shown as kind of in spinning circles, and there's a nice visualisation. Honestly, it's been looked into. No one's really quite sure how they're managing to do this. And as Ben alluded to, it's sort of, could this be smugglers or could this be something that the Chinese government or some other actor is testing out something for weaponizing this stuff? One of the things that caught my attention in the reporting on this was if you then look up the area on Strava, which is kind of for tracking mainly biking, but also exercise in general, you can actually see the same spoofed circles and because it's affected all GPS devices, not just ships. And with the uh-huh. ships, it's about the, how the GPS is used in what's called the AAS, which is kind of the way of tracking ships. But it's interesting to me that this shows up in Strava and presumably everyone else with a smartphone or GPS mm-hmm. was uh, affected by this when this was happening. There's kind of two points to think about there how easy it is to disrupt that stuff. And it's interesting that it's kind of showing up in this kind of globalised and anonymised data. And there's been other instances of this where kind of military bases have shown up because soldiers' runs are being tracked and stuff like that. But actually, also, having your GPS signal disappear could have quite a significant impact on the way you use your phone, particularly if you're using it for navigation. But also, if you think about any of the on-demand services, that's going to basically mess that stuff yeah. up. It had a very big impact on the New Glory because it smashed into the side of uh, Shanghai and caused an enormous amount of damage. And that was one of the interesting things is this is no longer a risk in theory. This actually has caused shipping to have quite a significant accident. And interestingly, even the Chinese river police there have reported that the locations of their patrol boats have been spoofed on a lot of occasions as well, which of course makes it hard for them to operate effective policing in the area as well. Going back to what you were saying about the military bases, though, Rafe, it's really curious that access to that GPS data and then trusting it. I was working for US Department of Defense around the time when that story came out. And although I wasn't working in an area that was particularly concerned by that, we were putting smartphones in soldiers' hands. And it really gave them pause for concern because this was a big open source data set 
that effectively if you found 50 people who ran in a rectangle in the middle of an African desert, you pretty much knew they were running around an airfield Mm -hmm. and then you could see a lot of other data as well. And it was absolutely fascinating. So uh, no conclusions. We we should wrap this one up. No conclusions to this story beyond, wow, look, that's interesting. Mm. But, you know, if you're interested, go and read the Technology Review article. It asks more questions than it answers, but it's absolutely fascinating. And I think this is one of those things that in a, in a few months or years' time, there'll be the follow-up because there's a whole army of GPS researchers trying to work out what's going on here now. And all of the obvious options of things failing or errors mm, or mm. faulty equipment are slowly being eliminated as they do their investigations and as it happens to more and more cases. So even if it's not malicious, it's an absolutely fascinating instance. And again, you know, sort of it'll throw a new angle on how we manage risk and positioning and timing data in the future for all kinds of industries. Definitely. Not least planes and boats. Okay, we should move on. Mm. Talking about planes and boats, we should talk about trains. Breaking news in London, you McLeod. Mm. Go ahead. Go on, share the exciting news with us. I believe Apple emailed you directly. Well, I, I thought maybe it's Apple, maybe it's TFL. Email me uh, this week, actually, to say you do not need to take out your smartphone and then do the face thing before you pay uh, the tube barriers or on any Transport for London services. I'm going to venture the opinion that their copywriting is not that sloppy. No, I think it probably said nicer things than that. But basically, <laughs> when I have been using the London Underground a lot, it's quite annoying with Face ID. I felt it was easier with Touch ID, right? Because, of course, you couldn't use your phone to do a transaction unless you had done the biometric, either the Face ID or the, the Touch ID. Let's just back up for the uninitiated. So in London, and actually all across the Transport for London network, right. You can pay for your transit using a contactless payment card. And as you repeatedly pay with the same contactless payment card, at the end of the day, the actual amount that you are billed is dictated by the number of trips you've taken and sort of fare capping and all kinds of clever stuff kicks in. But I think that's a relatively new concept in the US. But of course, as soon as it came into play, lots of people moved from using contactless payment cards to using their smart devices, including iPhone. Yes. yes. And here we find ourselves today because authorizing that transaction is annoying. It's a bit of an arse. I mean, I was really good at it with Touch ID. You know, take the phone out, put my finger over the Touch ID thing. It was then activated, ready. So then I would tap uh, where you would tap with your credit card and then walk straight through the gate. With Face ID, you see lots and lots of people, myself included, having to stop, you know, kind of lift the phone up and go, oh, hello, look at me. Then you put your phone down to do the transaction. That's been quite annoying. Well, as of this week, you don't have to do that anymore. Apple have enabled the, the auto, what's it called? The automatic... Express transit. Express transit function, which basically means you just tap your phone, as you would a credit card, right? You don't have to do any face ID or touch ID. Just touch or tap near the little yellow round thing. What, what do you call it? A contactless reader or something? Oyster reader. That's exactly what I call it, yeah. An oyster reader. There we go. Okay. And just walk straight through. Now, that is awesome, I think. And I think they'll really change things for lots and lots of people that are doing this. The challenge here is it's solving the problem that if you were using a phone, it was taking maybe a couple of seconds to get through the turnstiles. And at rush hour, it was noticeable. And sometimes it didn't work. And, you know, doing that kind of shuffle as someone tries to get their face recognized is interesting because I've used Apple Watch and use it on a daily basis to kind of do exactly that. And part of the reason for that is I just have to feel the watch double tap on the side control right, and just put my wrist in the right place. And so it's very easy and pretty painless. 
but this works on both the phone and the watch and effectively it's an always on version of NFC or the yeah. kind of contactless card so you don't have to worry about authentication and presumably this is deemed okay because it's a low transaction value and effectively it's like what's happening if you're just using a card yourself and Apple has updated its sort of NFC and I think this works on the 6S onwards so effectively Presumably what's happening here is you'll passively always have your default card loaded into the NFC chip or however it's working. Mm. And if it's for transit on TFL, it just accepts it. And yeah, yeah, this is a nice refinement because actually this makes me go, okay, this is now as convenient as using a card and arguably Mm. more convenient because it's probably a bit easier to get your phone or your watch out than it is to dig a card out of your wallet. Well, you typically have your phone in your hand, right? Exactly. Whereas before, I would argue that actually the difference between the two was such that in some cases it was still more convenient using a card. And certainly for those that had kind of got a contactless chip put in a bracelet or something else, that was always the kind of most convenient. Now, Now you're approaching that. So it's good to see Apple pushing a little bit on Apple Wallet and presumably its partners in the transport authorities as well, also pushing on that kind of overdue in some ways because i think the thing around apple one apple pay you know they've had the apple card come in and we might talk about that in a future episode but not really available in the uk so hard for us to kind of give a hands-on opinion on that Mm -hmm. but it does strike me apple wallet is one of those things really useful boarding passes tickets everything like that but it's been a bit static and there are still a lot of frustrating things about this so they fixed this thing for urban transport great Mm. what else would we like to see them do Well, I think that's an important nuance as well. So people might be worried about the fraud risk here. So this always on card only works on approved transit providers. So even if there are other providers around the UK who take contactless payments until they're actively switched on by Apple and by integrating with the Apple payment system, it won't work without authentication. It's a managed system. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, there is a fraud risk because somebody could grab your phone out of your hand and use it to make travel with, but it's not like they could go and buy shopping or you know go and buy higher value items or different items with it so that particular control is in place and also just it's interesting to see how the pressure has moved things back Rafe because I don't do you remember when Oyster payment was first launched in London it was a bespoke card of a certain standard that you touched on the readers and lots of people asked why they hadn't used NFC why they hadn't used other technologies which were very immature at that point yeah. and Transport for London always gave the case that they needed you to be able to tap the gate and walk through the gate without breaking your stride, which meant that it needed to operate within a couple of hundred milliseconds. And the recognition time on other forms of NFC and and indeed contactless cards was a couple of hundred milliseconds too long, and it was causing people to pause, and that was causing then in train stations that see thousands and thousands of people Mm -hmm. an hour, hundreds of people an hour through a particular gate, it was risking causing backlogs. And so it's really interesting to see that in the space of those probably about 10 years, Mm. I think we've been talking about it, we've gone from needing a bespoke payment solution to contactless cards working quickly enough to now this problem re-emerging because of the need to authenticate with smart devices. And I imagine that the transit providers were all screaming for this because certainly, you know, in the central London stations, you can't have a delay. It causes all kinds of chaos. Well, see if you're standing there with a paper ticket. That's probably one of the worst things you can do in London is stand there with a paper ticket and go, it goes through the machine and goes, error. And you put it out and you put it in again, then you can hear all these people behind you getting very, very annoyed. And I think that's the thing is that 
Transport for London and I assume the other transit authorities around the world, basically they've optimised that so much that basically people move at the maximum possible speed mm-hmm. they can through these gates now, which is effectively you know fast walking pace, that they need to, need to stay on top of it. But Rafe, sorry, you were warming up to mm-hmm. asking us about wallet and improving wallet. So having had this particular pain point removed, which is ACE, I'm really looking forward to trying it out. I haven't tried it yet. As we record this, it's been going for about two days now. What other improvements would you have make to wallet and why? I think some of the handling of kind of having multiple cards in your wallet is still a little bit painful about having to switch back and forth between them. I'd like some intelligence on that. So as an example, one of the things that's interesting is City Mapper, which we talked about before, having their kind of own card that you could use to place this bundled up Transport for London offering, which we've talked about in an earlier episode. Recently made that available on Apple Pay, so you don't have to carry the physical card. You can just use the City Mapper card in the Apple Wallet, which is great. Started using that. But I then found myself trying to pay for other things using the default card, which I'd now set as being City Mapper. And I wondered, could it not be intelligent enough to know that I'm in a station and therefore want to use this particular payment mechanism? Now, that's maybe a bit of an edge case, but actually working out, you know, being a bit more intelligent about which card gets presented would be helpful for me. So I think there's still improvements there, but it's actually probably more on the fact that Apple Wallet, in terms of the types of pass, which is the kind of the other things represented in the wallet, hasn't really updated much since its launch. Mm. And some of the kind of templates and the designs and the things you can do with it are still relatively limited. I've always thought it's been an interesting way to get stuff on the phone, not using an app and built a couple of prototypes for getting things like election results off the back of that, but got frustrated by the limitations. So I wonder why Apple hasn't given it the same degree of attention as some of the other places where it's tried to create what I'd call services for developers to put things on. And they've done it within iMessage. They've done it within Maps and a few other areas. I'd like to see them kind of make it easier to build kind of some some custom experiences or things within Wallet because the only real advancement that I'm aware of, and there have been a few others, is they have made it easier to do pay and loyalty tap at the same time. And it is possible now to pay for something and get your loyalty card topped up or the points recorded on at the same time, which is great. But I'd just like to see a bit more there and a bit more flexibility on the kind of the templates and the formats they offer for those items, those passes in the wallet. Quick travel hack, Rafe Manford. Now you can set your express transit card. You could have your automatic card as your city mapper and you could have a normal card as your default card. They don't have to be the same anymore. Ooh. Ah, excellent. I will check that out. I, like you, have the card I use to pay for my transit as the default one because it's the most frequent transaction I make, but I don't have to anymore because I can do express transit. We've run out of time, Ewan, mm. so you get 30 seconds on what would you improve Well, I, I'm just I'm with Blanford there. Look, I'm looking at that, and one of the top things I've got is on my wallet. This is Ryanair. And I said, when did I... I 2nd of April 2016, I apparently flew to Palermo. There you go, nice. right? I mean, it's, why is that still there in my flipping, you know, wallet thing? The boarding passes, that really annoys me, right? Why isn't there a time clean-up out. function or something or put it away, right? It's right yeah. there. Yeah, it's very, very annoying. So I think this does need a little bit more love, Apple. Come on. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Amen to that. I have to say I'm a little bit more pedantic than you. I go through and clean up my Apple wallet. Oh, do you? But it's work that I shouldn't have to do. What's the phrase? Yak shaving. Just pointless work. Okay, let's move on. 
in a jarring lack of planning slash coherent theme, uh, we should talk about Christmas gift guide now. Yes. As we record, it is Cyber Monday, which I don't think it should be a thing. It is. Black Friday has now infected most of the world, and yet, without the rationale of having Thanksgiving, mm. I think we all got reasonably giddy and bought stuff this Black Friday. Let's not talk about what we bought, because I don't want my wife to find out. Uh, but let's talk about <laughs> what deals we saw and thought would be good gifts. So mm. you each get to suggest one good tech-enabled gift for somebody this Christmas. How about a nice microphone for... No, on your wish. He's, he's smiling, listeners. He's smiling. I was just waiting for you to say that. It's always hard to pick out one of these things, but I'm going to talk about something I picked up recently which was the Amazon Echo Flex, which is basically the Echo that you can just plug into a spare plug. And it's intended to give you a bit more control around the home. Mm. And if you're using it for kind of smart home control, it means you don't have to shout into the next room to turn the <laughs> lights on. Turn the lights on. Or cancel an alarm, basic things like that. And so it's a relatively small, it's basically a plug-shaped and size mm. thing. And then it has modules that you can add and click into the bottom of it. And it's actually the modules from a third party. And at the moment, there's a motion sensor and there's a nightlight. That's quite cool, isn't it? You can do basic stuff like ask the nightlight to turn on, set it to different colours, which I think is just a, a useful thing to have. Does it have a speaker in it? Yes, there's a sort of speaker in it. You know, obviously, the quality of it is it's really for issuing commands, not mm-hmm. kind of playing stuff back. The motion sensor can be used to trigger an Alexa routine. So, you know, you can have it turn on the lights at night, for example, or when you arrive home or whatever else you might choose it to do. And these come in at about, I think it's 20 to 25 pounds, depending whether you're buying it on a deal or not. And then you can get the plug-in modules for sort of 15 pounds or so. So it's cheaper than buying a dot and potentially giving you a bit of extra functionality. So if you've got a friend or family member who's already got Alexa, but is maybe looking to make it a bit more available mm. around the rest of the home, I think the Echo Flex is a nice thing to have. But I'm also going to recommend a non-tech thing. Oh. One of my favourite books that I've read, I think it was this year, was The Seabird's Cry by Adam Nicholson. And it basically goes through a whole bunch of seabirds and gives you a bit of history, some scientific studies. And one of the chapters is on puffins, which people who follow my Instagram will know I'm quite fond of. We know this man loves his puffins. And it gives an interesting insight into puffins in that when they go out to sea after having had their chicks, they actually follow the same track kind of year on year. So basically what they go and do over winter is they fly around the same stretch of sea, but all puffins do something slightly different. So even from the same colony, they will go out to different bits of the North Atlantic or sometimes the North Sea. And this book, The Seabirds Cry, if you're interested in that kind of thing or seabirds at all, it's a very easy read. So I'd recommend The Seabirds Cry. I was given it by a friend. It was a a great book. I really enjoyed it. So I wanted to recommend that as well. They haven't yet been spoofed, Blanford. Indeed. (laughs) I have to say, uh, very impressive, Blanford. Something to think about. Right, you're McLeod. Your gift recommendation? My one is for a youngster, plus four, it says on the website, a youngster in your life, and that's Kano, or Kano, depending on how you want to pronounce it, K-A-N-O. You will probably have seen these, they're, they're kind of computer kits that you can get children. Ah, oh, I want one of these. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. That They're aimed, I think it's really, I think, seven, eight. You should, probably should be 
reasonably literate, I think, just to read the little instruction manual that comes with it. But basically, you build a computer, you literally put a computer together, a little bit like uh, Lego, snap the thing together as a Raspberry Pi, the computer kit, the default one. Currently £59. It was £149, says the website. I've been following uh, Kano for ages and ages. It's just my children haven't really been, I felt, ready for it. Archie's nine, Freddie is seven, and Archie's he's been talking about programming now. Oh, yeah, just do some programming, Daddy. I was like, all right, okay, here we go. I think it's time now. I wanted him to ask. You get a keyboard, you get this little Raspberry Pi that runs Kano Auth, their own default operating system, Linux operating system. Plug it into an HDMI monitor, and it basically encourages the child to learn to code. And you can actually manipulate Minecraft and so on. There's all sorts of really, really interesting games and ideas and things around coding, but very, very easily. It looks to be very easy to access. I've bought a lot in the uh, Black Friday sales. So I've got one for Archie, one for Freddy, and also got the Harry Potter Kano coding kit. You have to build a wand, a Bluetooth wand, and you download the app onto your iPad, Windows or Mac or Amazon Fire tablet, and uh, you can program this wand, this electric Bluetooth wand, to do stuff that looks really cool and i also got the star wars the force coding kit where you have to snap together and create a kind of um what is it when you put your hand over something you know a sensor yeah like a motion sensor basically but that's how you can control the millennium falcon or an x-wing and so on but you can program all this it looks really really cool i'm hoping they'll go for it i'm cautiously excited i was almost going to buy them the kano pc i think it was october they, they announced this or launched it 299 pounds and you can build a Windows 10 powered PC. Same concept, same idea. You kind of snap the thing together um, and it turns into basically a very, very, very budget Microsoft Surface. But it looks pretty cool. There's a Star Wars The Force coding kit, £49. The Disney Frozen 2 coding kit. Then you can also get a computer kit that comes with a touchscreen. So there's a whole lot of different options there. Yeah, cool. I say I recommend it. But I haven't tried them yet. I've heard great feedback from others, so I'll have proper feedback after Christmas. The other thing is, I'd say, if your kids are too small to take on the Kano kits and start to build, and I have to say, that does sound cool for older kids, but I'd say sort of for the early school years, check out the Osmo games. It's a game you install on an iPad, and then you stand the iPad up, and the camera on the iPad looks down at the table in front, and you use counters and shapes to interact with it, and it's nice because it provides a real variety of gameplay but actually it's truly interactive in terms of it's a creative Mm. thing and some of the games involve drawing some of them have counters we bought one for a family member and it was a very crude original kit but i saw some of the more recent ones in john lewis at the weekend big department store here in the uk and there's loads of games and sets you can buy it's no small investment 70 pounds for the starter kit but it's uh, it's a ton of games it's really nicely done and it's also sort of stem based educational Mm -hmm. learning Mm -hmm. it's really good fun so I thoroughly recommend that. It's beautifully implemented. Oh, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to have to go quickly on my one then. I think I would say portable tech. Portable tech's expensive and it's a treat to get, which is why it's such a nice Christmas or birthday gift. And I have two suggestions depending on your budget. I've actually just bought one for our family, a Hugo. Not Hugo, but a Hugo. Right. So it's a dish-shaped light. Oh, yes. yes. On the Hue system and that's the smart lighting system that Philips make. Normally you buy a few bulbs and you plug them in and you can change the colour and the brightness. This is a portable lamp which works in the same way. 
it's brilliant because you can stick it in your bedroom or we're going to stick it in a TV room and it's going to have some nice background lighting. But then when friends come around, you can put it in the middle of the table and have it in lieu of a candle yeah. if, um, you know, if you've got small kids or you can do mood lighting. It's about £70 and less with the occasional offers that come up. So it's not massively expensive, but it's really versatile. And it's also a good way to get into using smart lighting without having to replace all the bulbs or to do something you know, sort of more complicated. How do you charge it? It just plugs in. It comes with a charging kit and it will work plugged in. So you can have a home for it and then you, know, you can pick it up and move it around when you want to. How many hours do you I mean, is it usable? Rafe, you've got one, haven't you? You can tell me the real truth. I do, yes. And you've got one as well. Jeez. Right. Catch up, Ewan. What is it? What's, what, what was well, it, 10 hours or something? What? I get about four hours out of mine. <laughs> he said, I think you'll find. <laughs> Based on my one that's sitting about three metres away from me. But I actually keep mine plugged in most of the time, but it does do a nice bit of mood lighting. Yep, I was really impressed because it'll work on its own. They're Bluetooth now, so you can just work with the phone. You don't have to go and buy an expensive wow. hub and everything. That's really cool. And then it's cool because if the person you buy it for wants then to get more, they can get the hub. And then they right. would be able to do, you know, cool, smart lighting stuff. So it's, a, it's a, a gateway. Yeah. It's actually interesting because Philips have actually really expanded their range of Hue offerings. You can get outside lights. You can get kind of the chandelier type things. You can get things that go next to your TV to provide kind of side lighting, the LED strips and the bulbs. So it's now possible to kit out not just the inside, but the outside of your home. And it does just work. I think the reason I like this Hue Go product is it's a whole distinct bit of kit that is unique to this range and it's really handy one of the criticisms i'd level of the other stuff in the hue range is they're just holders so the outside range you just talked about rafe they're weatherproof holders inside are normal hue bulbs so you can put normal hue bulbs in any fitting that you'd like to at all whereas this is a particular it's a rechargeable Mm -hmm. unit Mm -hmm. and it has the value of being you know kind of a contained unit we won't talk about it but the other thing is if they're into sound the Sonos Move, small, new, chunky, oh. portable Sonos speaker, oh, which nice. works on Bluetooth and Wi-Fi. That's a bigger investment. That's going to set you back about £360. And it's big. I mean, it's a lot bigger than the old Sonos ones. But all the feedback from people who've got them, I know, is great because it sounds fantastic. It can work with your Sonos system if you've got it. But then you can pick it up, move it around the house. Great for parties and entertaining and that kind of stuff. Nice to have things that do more than one job. Grand. Well, as ever, please get in touch if you've got any great Christmas suggestions. Like I say, I spent a lot of time looking for uh, new toys uh, over Black Friday. Just no no reason, just, you know, just in case I saw something. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, most of those deals have ended now, but if you've got any suggestions for what make good Christmas gifts, let us know and we will share them on Twitter. Right, gentlemen, we should go. We will be back oh, yeah. in a fortnight's time. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we are at 361podcast on Twitter or 361podcast.com where you can find a form to email us or you can leave comments on the show. Thank you to everyone who left podcast reviews. A couple of them came in over the last couple of days. Thank you for all your kind words and indeed for braving the iTunes ecosystem, which I know is miserable at the best of times. So that was really exciting. It's fantastic to read those. Awesome. And uh, what else do we need to remind people to do, you and McLeod? We need to remind them, thank you for reminding me, we need to remind them that if you'd like to support the show, you can also go to 361podcast.com and check out our Patreon. Uh, make a small contribution to the costs of production and our otherwise lavish lifestyles. We should probably also say Happy Christmas to everybody. By the time this goes out, it will nearly be Christmas. So if you celebrate, Happy Christmas. Otherwise, enjoy the quiet time at work. And yes, we're still taking loads of suggestions for topics to cover into the new year. So we will be picking those up. We've had loads of great ones and loads of suggestions for 
YouTube topics that we should cover in the future. So we will be picking up on those really soon. Right. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be with you in a fortnight. Bye-bye. This is the gardening leaf mashup, 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 mashup. some clapping. Three, two, one. This is why he earns the big bucks. Love you, long time, long time, long time. Yeah. I love pirates, 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 pirates,